It's basketball season and we've got you covered. The Ringer NBA show breaks down the latest and greatest around the league five days a week. Check out the Ringer NBA show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. How was that? Give me a big booming. Oh, 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 oh no. Oh. People are going to think I've put that in the intro. I was going to do another little list. I'm not going to do a little list. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast from RSC. I'm Musa Kwanga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks Musa. How are you? Good. Interesting weekend. Plenty of incident. Lots of highs. What, what did you low. do? Staying well, eating good food, long walks with friends. Um, really good to catch up with a couple of people. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only one slight low, which I will mention, which is, um, I hesitate to say it, but you know, this is the life we live in. So, so I'm going for a wonder and then someone walks past me in the middle of town and they've got like this clothing brand which is really favoured among the far right in Germany and it's a well-known brand and people always say ignorance is bliss but actually I disagree I'm shout out to my first ever girlfriend in Germany who I dated who knew all about the far right stuff she told me what to look out for and I feel like in the times we're in it's good to know the environment you're in so yeah it was a bit of a low but I was also like I'm glad I know what this is. I almost went up to the guy and was you like, what this was? you knew what this was? <laughs> Actually, on that, like, uh, oh my God, I listened to Stadio. Oh my goodness. Whilst we're, on, uh, whilst we're on lows, we had obviously more booing of taking the knee on the England game on Sunday. Yeah, and Max yeah. Rushton wrote a tweet about it, which someone tagged us in saying, you know, like we said on Stadio, we mentioned it last time. And some uh, very clever chaps decided to respond to the, you know, if it walks like a duck and, quacks like a duck it's a duck with uh, the trouble comes when you're so obsessed with duck hunting that you see ducks wherever you look whether they're there or not and the Stadio account who <laughs> I don't know who runs it actually but I'm, no glad, idea. That, no I'm idea. glad that we don't have anything to do yeah, with it yeah. no one's obsessed with duck hunting they said the gentleman kindly responded again in my metaphor they are use a bit of imagination 
To which yeah. someone else chimed in saying, a quick look at your tweets makes me think that you quack a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I, saw, I saw that tweet and I have to say, Ryan, I was like, I think that the first thing is like, oh, I'm, I'm politically homeless. And I'm like, no, you're not. There is a political home for you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know where it is. Yeah, there's a home for you, you my friend. You know where it is. Where everybody knows your name. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, obviously, I'm not. You know, actually, to be honest, I felt more like Fleetwood Mac. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. <laughs> tell me lies, tell me, tell tell me, me lies. lies. Oh my God. Oh no, I'm no. Harmonizing. I sing far too much on this podcast. I sing way too much on this podcast. <laughs> We're not talking about booing the knee because it's so ridiculous, man. Our, our mentions were, um, were an absolute... We had uh, Marxism in our mentions the other day. Marxism. Get you a podcast that could do... Control all, the... All of, never mind both. All of right. the schools of thought. Control the tweets of production. Good grief. If we're not careful, we're going to get another one-star review about pushing progressive narratives on the podcast. Oh my goodness. Terrifying. Let's move this on. Anyway... Let's- We'll begin in the usual place by saying we hope everyone is staying safe and well. Safe and well. Hopefully, if you're allowed to get out and about, getting out and about, getting a little bit of sun, getting vaxxed, remember? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. If for, for sure. no other reason, it will eventually make you immune to Moose's takes. Once you've had the vaccine, Moose's takes will wash off you like, it's like you're wearing Kevlar. Exactly. It'll just, whoosh. it's like Go. three Champions Leagues. Exactly. You can be immune to my takes. How about that? I think he's a generational talent. That's compelling. <laughs> it's the uh, football bullshit bingo vaccine. There we go. That is so compelling. There'll be cues around the block at this rate. Cues around the low block. Ooh, You're welcome. See, You're, see very you welcome. You're very welcome. You can so all have fun. that one. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of admin, obviously, studio today. We're doing a what if episode. We're going to round up a couple of fixtures and leagues very, very quickly. And then we're yep, going to move yep. on to our final what if of the season. Righty's house will go up Wednesday. You, me and Righty. We're going to chat a little bit about the Euros. Look ahead. Some teams we fancy, some teams we don't. Some players we're looking forward to seeing. Might chat about some kits as well. Uh, don't forget to check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. There is a, a Euros entry survey going up from a load of staff members from The Ringer. Yes. Which, did you do yours? I did, but I... I did mine as well. I, I, I didn't put explanations and now they're all going to look very cryptic. They'll just be like, he just declared that's going to be, a, that's a prediction. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's your energy. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. <laughs> People yeah, who yeah. know, know. Yeah, they know yeah. what Moose is like. And then obviously, right, his house every few days for the Euros and Stadio um, will return, will sweep in if the, um, the emergency pod signal gets fired up. Indeed. We will try and jump on and do something if anything seismic happens. If not, we'll, we will come back once the group stages have concluded and we'll wrap up our thoughts on the group stages. And then remember, we'll be popping into the Ringer FC feed after every single stage of the tournament. We will. So I reckon that's everything, admin-wise. Oh, Stadio Outro's playlist on Spotify if you want to check the music we play out with each episode. And don't forget, if you do listen to us on an app, that allows you to rate and review, please do so. It'd be super kind. And yeah, so let's get on to some football super quick before we get on to the what ifs. So the women's domestic leagues wrapped up in France and Germany this weekend. They were both won by a one point margin. Yeah. Paris Saint-Germain won their first 
ever Division One title, ending Leon's fourteen season long. Fourteen. Run. Does anyone have any idea? Fourteen in a row. The stamina it takes to maintain a run like that. Good grief! In Germany, Bayern. The huge wins for Bayern and Wolfsburg in the final day of the they season. They both chased it to the end. Yeah, yeah. Both um, chasing teams really gave it everything. They both had eight 0 wins, I think. Yeah, Leon had an eight 0 win. So yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, that both sides who ended up finished second really, really went for it. It's ferocious, yeah. PSG beating Dijon 3-0 on Friday. Both games were on Friday night. Wrapped up the league for PSG. The scenes were unbelievable. And one thing I wanted to mention, actually, was the work that the PSG Ultras have done this season on welcoming the women to home games. Very, very often this season, they've given them the same kind of welcome that they would have given the men's teams. Ultras out in force, flares going off, loads of chants, welcoming them to the game, creating like a really good atmosphere behind them, even though they can't be in the stadium. It's amazing that it makes all the difference in the pandemic. And it's just so good to see, especially for a club like PSG, which I think that because of the because of the takeover and the amount of money that they've had in the last decade, I think that a lot of people forget that PSG is it's a, a real, it's, it's a, real it's a proper team. Parisian yeah. club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a cult club for years. Those fans didn't go away, you know. So they have a very, very unique mixture, I think, there because they are now operating on. Obviously, you know, went to the Champions League final. They've got the most expensive player in the world on the men's side. That is, and I think that it's really good to see the ultras and fans from from that from the club like transfer that energy to the women's side as well. And I think it made a lot of difference because a lot of those teams in France would not have been used to getting a welcome like that at home games. Right. Anywhere right. in the world, actually. I mean, maybe apart from like Colombia. You look how small the margin is as well. Yeah. It must have made a difference. It must Absolutely. have made a difference. Well, even, even looking at the, um, the way the, the games played out, it was only 1-0 to PSG for an, until an hour into the game. Mm. While I think Lyon were already 4-0 up. So the smallest margins in that title. And we've seen Leon, even Leon, like a wounded, a wounded Leon in the Champions League, extremely difficult to beat, even mm-hmm. when they're clearly on their last legs in terms of their cycle of dominance. Not to say they won't be back next year, but in terms of cycle of dominance, it's clearly, clearly ended. Huge of PSG. Congratulations to, the, to them and to the support base. And Bayern obviously winning their first title since 2016 in Germany. Yeah, that was um, a, a slightly more routine affair. Mm. but Bayern doing what they've done so well this year is striking early but obviously Wolfsburg's dominance in Germany has been punctuated a little bit more by Bayern I think it's really interesting that you've seen how hard though this new Bayern and PSG have had to work in order to end the dominance of Leon and Wolfsburg I mean they've had to be at their absolute maximum and then some to secure the league by a point and it does raise an inter- interesting question for me. And there was a really, really great piece that Sophie Lawson wrote last week about the toxic positivity around women's football. Now, for those who don't know Sophie's work, she is, I mean, her Twitter bio is literally, someone once pr- uh, described her as the David Attenborough of women's football. <laughs> yeah. And Sophie is really great at, I think, highlighting just certain nuances in the game that I think that a lot of people will miss. And we've said this a million times before on Stadio, and I want to clarify again, that even though we cover a lot of the women's game and we watch a lot of the women's game, there are people out there who are absolute professionals who have been covering it for a lot longer than we have when there was far less interest around it and continue to do so. And those are the people that I would refer you to. I would never, I would never listen to us and that be your fix women's football yeah, I would definitely right. continue reading we posted a thing a while ago on the Stadio Twitter about people writing about women's football and who to check out and um, we often retweet people obviously like Jasmina Schreimler in Germany Sophie's great um, 
Amy Rushkai for goal, um, Katie Wyatt, all of these people. There's so many. But Sophie wrote a really interesting piece about the toxic positivity in women's football. It made me think about these two title races in particular, because right. as great as it is to, to ever see a, a reign of dominance end, it is quite interesting that those levels of dominance were ended by clubs that are essentially super clubs. Right. The only slight, slight downside for me is just this, you know, okay, is this, is this the, the normalization on the women, on the men's side now crossing over to the women's side because the, the clubs have realized that this is a goer. Right. When huge runs like this come to an end, it's very, very easy to instantly say what that team whose, whose reign came to an end did wrong. But I actually think in this instance, it is just very much of the competition is getting way stronger. And the only thing that I would hope for is that it doesn't, again, once the, what's the word? It doesn't organize itself into the same kind of hierarchy that we see in the men's game. Yeah, yeah, It yeah. would be that great to fear. see, you know, people like Turbina still challenge in the Bundesliga again or, you know. Essen, does that Hoffenheim. make sense? Yeah, yeah of course. Like, Essen, Essen as well. Like teams that are really coached very well, don't have the resources, but. Yeah, I mean, Essen had a really disappointing teams. season this season. I mean, it's understanding yeah. that they've lost their two best players over the last two seasons. Right, right. To Bayern and to Wolfsburg in Leia Schuler and Lena Oberdorf. But still. But exactly that, the fact they can keep producing, that they can get some resale value and keep moving. We often talk about, uh, in the Premier League, you often talk about the Premier League middle class. And I think that what we've seen as well, we've mentioned it before in Spain, in France and in in Germany, is that I think a lot of the middle class is starting to get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, props to Bayern, props to PSG. And... Um, also, elsewhere, quickly, to Argentina. Yes. Um, so Cologne won their first major title uh, in 116-year history. They won their Copa de la Liga Profesional, beating Racing 3-0 in the, I suppose, the playoff final. Uh, the scenes from that were incredible. There was mm. a, an amazing video being shared of a 91-year-old man who'd never seen his club with anything and was just beside himself. He was absolutely beside himself. They won a second division title in the 60s, I think, but this was their first kind of like Premier Division title. So that's absolutely huge for them. Really excited for them. Um, and it's funny because Cologne, for those, who's, for those listening of a certain vintage who bought World Soccer back in the day, mm-hmm. Cologne were a team you always just saw, like a perennial on the league table. Always like, oh, like they're never quite, they're never quite up there. Yeah, finished runners up in 97 in the Argentinian First Division and were finalists in the Copa Sudamerica in 2019. So a couple of years ago, it's basically the South American equivalent of Europa League, I guess. Yeah. And they've been on the verge for a long time. Yeah. 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 But the Copa de la Liga, which is the title that they won, was a tournament that came in to replace the traditional league format because the league in Argentina was suspended for, it was like over six months, I think, oh, last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, props to Cologne. Oh man, let's go from South America to North America. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically Denver, Colorado. Big congratulations to the USA who defeated Mexico 3-2 to win the first ever CONCACAF Nations League Cup. Mm. No Nations League. Yeah, this game was, uh, it was true to the season. It had everything, had all the vitamins. It was very chaotic. Very chaotic. I'm not um, sure if it was the, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to just uh, go a little bit mischievous, if you don't mind. <laughs> go for it, go for it. Many thanks to everyone who was uh, tweeting at us telling us that we had to do something on this despite it being a game that kicked off at 3am our time. So uh, 
you know, yeah. just give me a minute, guys, to wake up, watch it back and record a podcast on it. Just give me, give me a sec, guys. Give me a I sec. only caught, uh, it was funny because I only caught some of the game because I'm... You were awake, yeah, but I bit, sleep, bit, I sleep yeah, at normal well, human hours. So I was asleep at 3am on a Sunday night. Sorry to jump in. I was only awake because my sleep patterns have been ruined recently. So I only caught it by chance. And I caught the latter part and someone actually wrote like, we have a podcast this. I thought, well, Ryan hasn't seen it live, so it, or he hasn't followed it, and I hadn't followed it from the start. We watch it. We watch it back, though. We know, you know, we keep an yeah, eye on stuff. Like, we do, we do, we, we do. do. But I, I mean, just to just it, put but... it out there, though. In theory, we weren't even supposed to be doing a podcast this week at all on the That's original right. schedule, you know. And yeah. and I mean, it's funny with international football stuff, and I just want to throw this out there a little bit because obviously, you know, the stadio is now on the ringer, but we don't do a huge amount of international stuff anyway. Usually if we focus on club football. So, I mean, I don't think yeah. we spoke much about the, the European Nations League when that was on the UEFA Nations League. But I think with this game being such a big game, because A, it was the first one, B, it was against, you know, two arch rivals in terms of Mexico huge and rivals, yeah. Uh, yeah. the USA, who, you know, footballing-wise, they are the, obviously the two biggest footballing nations in CONCACAF. Yeah. I wonder whether the hysteria around this game was because it was Mexico. Because, you know, they've won, what, six Gold Cups before the US? Right. But only, gee, was it, I think it was only 2007, it was Mexico that they beat in the final. So, but they, you know, they won it a few years ago. Maybe because it was the inaugural one, fans back, you know, maybe fans in stadiums against Mexico and just a wild game of football. I mean, quality-wise, it was very chaotic. It was very enjoyable to watch back. Yeah. So on that note, I think, you know, let's talk about the game a little bit. Obviously, I think, and again, I think why this, why this felt like such a, such a big victory was because it has the golden crop of US youngsters in there. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost winning, them winning something together. Yeah, I mean, it's almost big like, for them. I think it's yeah. big to win a trophy, obviously ahead of the Gold Cup starting in July, which in reality is the big one. You know, the Nations League is good and you're never going to sniff at any silverware as a, as a, as a, at any side, really. But it's really important for the US to use this as a, as a, like a stepping stone to really make an assault on the, on the, on the Gold Cup because that's the one. Yeah. And the reaction of the Mexico coaching staff, you could see how much this meant. This well, was I mean, Martino got sent off. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. got sent <laughs> off. <laughs> but I mean, Wild. so, I mean, the, the great thing as well for the US, I think, is that Mexico, I don't think this is a vintage Mexico side, mm. but even when they're not vintage. Still dangerous. They know how to hurt teams. I yeah, mean, you, yeah. you saw how they stung Germany in 2018. Right. They are never an easy side to play football against Mexico. If you yeah. remotely half step on Mexico, they can hurt you, no matter how, you, no, yeah. no matter yeah. what kind of squad they are, they have. So I think going to goal down so early on, it, I mean, it was quite a poor start from the US. But to get back into it, you know, it's funny. Like VAR is so interesting that Hector Moreno had the disallowed header. Yeah, uh, which would have made it two 0 I think that with the momentum Mexico had would have been that would have been very very tricky for the US to go back into it. Difficult, yeah, because Mexico aren't they're not normally that um, generous when they when they go get the noses in front. And McKenney actually stepping up, he was brilliant. I thought actually. so. Uh, the, the, the equaliser came through Gio Reyna again, the offensive rebound, but the header, <laughs> as we can call it that, but the header from McKenney onto the post and his presence throughout. Like McKenney wasn't just brilliant at headers, wasn't just brilliant at midfield. But McKenney is often first to the scene when there's a brawl. And that's interesting. I think you said this before, didn't you? You said like when a player is in trouble, it's who's first, who steps up. And it's, you know, you're not trying to encourage violence. It's more like the indignation and the protest, he is often leading the pack. Mm. 
And it's interesting how he's become a leader like that. It was there at Schalke though. Do you know what? When Schalke were going down. Okay, yeah, it was there at when, Schalke. When, when um, Schalke were playing poorly, McKenney always stood out. And it's why when Juve came in for him, I remember thinking, it's a left field signing, but it makes a bit of sense. Yeah, I think a lot of those guys can step up into bigger teams. Like you've seen it with yeah. Dest. I think Dest has a lot to work on at Barca still, but I don't think he's looked, he's not looked hugely out of place to anyone else really in that Barca side. Not season. at all, no, not at all. Obviously, we've spoken about Gio Reyna a lot because of um, the Dortmund stuff. But I think with Gio, it's, it's interesting because I think he just hit a little bit of that rookie wall, which is completely natural for players of that age. I mean, he's only he's still super, super young. Also, that position is hard. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. you know, when you're kind of going for a title, you've seen it with Pulisic. Like Pulisic at Chelsea hasn't been able to nail down a starting spot. But if I'm being brutally honest, I think I've said this before, I think that is a good position for him at the moment at Chelsea or it was in the latter stages of the season I think having him to come on against tired defences was a really good tool for, for Tuchel to have but he'll, right. but he'll eventually get a starting spot he'll eventually these guys are still really young you know right. none of them are 25, 26 they're all still very very early on in their careers this is the cool thing about this game is that you've got a lot of youngsters in there who showed real grit yeah, and they weren't yeah. really overawed by it. I thought that you know, coming from behind twice against Mexico. I mean, obviously, Reiner equalising what like just before the half hour mark really off the post. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really. I think that's the thing. It was as soon as that second goal got disallowed for for Mexico, rightly so, it was offside. Yeah, yeah. It was imperative that the US equalised before half time. Yeah, it took momentum back. Yeah, they had to go into half time level because if they conceded again before half time, that is really tricky to get to turn around, I think, to come yeah. from two goals down. Diego Linas gave Mexico the lead again. There was a funny thing there. We talked about tiredness, didn't we? And there was a mm. bit of a marking issue um, with uh, Tim Ream over on the left-hand side. Linus is in so much space mm. for about four or five seconds. Normally in a situation like that, where a player comes in to score, you see they're making a late run, but he was just waiting for it. And that mm. was because the game by then was so stretched. This is like 12 minutes to go. The game was so stretched. and It was played at such a tempo. And these players have also played full club seasons. Well, I think this Does is it, something that again is quite impressive. I think about both sides because, you know, it was less, it was just over a week since Pulisic was in the Champions League final. Um, and Zach Stefan was there as well, of course. Yeah. Oh, Stefan. Stefan, I always say in the German way, Zach Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Zach. If we say Stefan, they'll forgive it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these guys were all playing domestic football two weeks ago. And, the, and some of them, are, and some of the really competitive end as well. Yeah, and flying yeah. to another. I mean, obviously, I think Mexico have had that as well because they had a number of players in. They have a number of players playing in Europe, mm. but but I just think it's a testament to these guys that they even managed to go to extra time and keep playing because yeah. at the end of the season that's been having to fly to different time zones that soon after playing, like from wrapping up their club seasons, and then get thrown into something that is. The Nation League is a, the Nations League is a curious one. It's a very like it's obviously still a new format. UEFA tried it. I think it's been a great addition to 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 give friendlies some meaning, but it still sits in this really curious like position of how important is it to win at the moment? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It doesn't matter till it does. It's the that's exactly what it is. It's how a lot of teams treat the Europa League. Really, yes. it's yes. like when they get as soon as you get into a into a point of winning it or the league cup yeah yeah definitely it's amazing that the US managed to come from behind twice to do that especially in a game that seemed to be really unravelling for both teams really 
Um, you put this really well though. You said, we were talking before and you said, the opportunities to win international silverware come along so rarely. Yeah. And this is now a thing where like this US team is, has the potential to be a golden generation, right? But they've got that trophy out of the way early or that psychological thing out of the way, like Dortmund uh, with the Pokal. Yeah, in, it's important. Germany. You need something. It's like when, when Pochettino won a title for the first time at PSG, we were like, that matters. And we couldn't say why it mattered before, but it's almost because you need a, a marker. And I feel like you see the way they celebrated this trophy and the way the Mexicans kind of mourned the defeat. This was a marker. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think he, something yeah. really interesting as well that um, I thought was that you had three goal scorers for the US who were all one major silverware at their club size this season. And I was wondering if that's ever happened before, whether you've ever had, I mean, obviously that's quite a niche stat. That's like a very much like a Duncan Alexander stat, but like- <laughs> They're the best ones. But so, when was the yeah. last time that the US had- the US men's team, obviously, because it's in the women's national team, it's much, much different. In the men's team, when was the last time, if ever, that there were three goal scorers in the game who had all won major silverware at your top European sides? Like, it, I think if you look at the, if you look at where these players play. That's a great stat. Barcelona, I mean, obviously Barcelona, well, they won a copper as well. So Gino Dest won, but he didn't score. But if you think Pulisic scored, Reina scored, McKenney scored, and they all won silverware this season. That is such a great stat. That's the thing I think that's really quite interesting about this side. We've kind of avoided a bit of the game specifically to talk about more of the what this means kind of aspects, but I think that... I think this is important as well because the context of it... If they win the Gold Cup, it kind of matters and it really doesn't matter at the moment because what really matters, it's like there's so much football going on in this, whether when it really probably shouldn't be, Yeah, that you can totally feel for some of those top players underperforming if they get deep into a competition like that, because they've basically been running to the ground all year. Yes. If I would extend a little bit of a cautionary advice to, to US soccer fans, <clears throat> I would say that be mindful of that because this is another competition that's going to be quite emotionally and physically draining for sides. And with the Euros as a prime example, like I, you know, I picked France for the Euros, but I have no yeah, idea yeah, me, how those players too. are going to physically cope. If two or three break down, which to be honest, you would absolutely expect for the amount of football that they've played this season, then it throws the whole tournament into jeopardy. Because Zach Steffen going off, Zach Steffen went off after like about an hour with, exactly, the, um, with the muscle, with muscle strain. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, well, is that, is that wear and tear? Is that, you know... It, I mean, it's strange because that's a goalkeeper who hasn't, obviously hasn't played a huge amount for Manchester City. He's training hard as well. He's training ridiculously. You know, I'm pretty sure Pep is not going easy on a guy like that in training. No, for sure. Let's quickly wrap up the rest of the game. Yeah, sure. We talked about Lionez getting Mexico back in front and then two, three minutes later, McKenney equalising. It's kind of wild that McKenney was so yeah, dominant like in the air in this game because he's not the biggest dude, Weston McKenney. Do you remember how Cannavaro used to win all those headers or like Marcelo Salas? Yeah. And they weren't big, but they, the timing of their run or the jumps was unbelievable. And Mexico never, ever found an answer for the timing of his jumps. Yeah. Statement header, statement header. It was a totally a statement header because like Ottawa made that amazing save from him from a header earlier on. Right. This is, Ochoa, can I say, can I, quick, quick moment for Ochoa. Ochoa, this man's going to be in goal for Mexico in the year 3020. Right. <laughs> Honestly. And I remember I, I was, oh my God, I nearly mentioned this again. Uh, the World Cup game, the Brazil nil, Mexico nil. Yeah. And I'm sorry to mention being in Brazil, but there's a, there's a point to it. So on this beach is Copacabana, right? And the, Ryan, everyone's mate. This is like the first game really? all with Brazil. Sorry. 
it's the first game that all the Brazil fans have basically brought out their like cocktails on the beach. It's the first game that like all the like rich Brazilians are on the beach and they want a big party. And Ochoa silenced an entire beach. And everyone was waiting for the big moment, the opening goal of the tournament, like from or the opening goal of the game. And Ochoa was like out of this world. And I'm, I'll never forget this man silenced a bunch of Brazilians go home like <laughs> gutted. And this one man, and like watching Ochoa do it again in this final, I just thought, you've been doing this for like, what, 15 years? He's yeah, been that good. Done. So, I mean, so that's, that, that's what I think makes the header from McKenny so so much more impressive is that this is not him this at is that a, time. A, an elite goalkeeper. And then to get them back into it, obviously went to extra time. Pulisic winning the penalty and scoring it with six minutes to go. And then... I mean, to be fair, penalty, should, have, should have two penalties for that foul. I know. <laughs> it was so like, so much, what yeah. are you doing? That, that, was yeah. a bit, that was a very tired tackle. Yeah. And then four minutes into stoppage time, at the end of extra time, a penalty to Mexico for handball, which I thought was a... Extremely harsh. I didn't think it was a penalty to be honest, but I don't know what hand, what is handball and what's not anymore. Let's Do you know the, glee, the gleeful look, the gleeful looks on the faces of the Mexico players and they were like, they just, it was so funny. They clustered the referee immediately and they smiled. They're like, there's no way you can't give this. It was, <laughs> it was really an expert situation, like working a ref, like to the point where you look over and the ref is basically thinking, I can't not give that in a game. Yeah. Of you can't not, in a way. Well, to be honest, the ref was um, was enjoying the occasion. That's uh... <laughs> it was yeah, it was a generous interpretation of a penalty. But um, the save from Horvath, what a save! The reason I thought it was a very good penalty was because so Guardado doesn't hit so, like often with these penalties, you hit them across the keeper. Oh, by the way, Pulisic, his penalty was outstanding. Amazing, yeah. Before I forget, Guardado doesn't hit it across the keeper. He goes bottom corner. And normally, like you generate more power going across the keeper, right? If you want power. But this actually had really a lot of power and direction. It wasn't really directly in the side end. It was pretty damn good, but Horvath gets, yeah, but he got a really strong wrist Mm. to it. This is the thing. His save made the penalty look worse than it was. The save was incredible because he gets down and back and like a lot of goalkeepers and the US has been turning out great goalkeepers for years. So maybe this Mm -hmm. is like old hat, but probably the I could be their strongest position over the last few decades, really. I, I, well, I, was, I was up watching the late stages of this and there was a very anxious tweet from, I think, Club Bruges congratulating him, but also like... He's gone. <laughs> the Club Bruges social media person. <laughs> Is it some, <laughs> was, oh, no. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. European <laughs> time, Monday. Congratulations, oh, no. like, Ethan. Yeah, and then... Yeah, like, oh, no. 5 p.m. Monday, European time. Uh, Club Bruges is pleased to announce that Paul Barth <laughs> yeah, has gone to Real attention. Madrid. <laughs> we wish him all the best of his future. I know it sounds mean, but I saw that save and I burst out laughing because I'm like, when I saw the tweet from Bruges, I was like, you're nervous. It was just a really good save. Like, I, think, that, I think what save. you said was really good. I think the, f- the save made the penalty look worse than it probably was because I think at that stage of the game, obviously, I mean, it's basically the last kick of the game. Yeah. To get down that low. And back as well. Yeah. Very good save. And that was it. That was it. The US won the inaugural CONCACAF Nations League. The outpouring of emotion after that, the culmination of this, because they get a bit of a rest now, but the culmination of this for, for, the, for the players, they've had this huge season. They've been apart. They've been in touch, obviously, by WhatsApp. A lot of them won't have seen each other that much. And to kind of come together for this moment, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's a, big, it's a big deal, I think. I think whatever happens, it's put them significantly further ahead than if they hadn't won it mm. for some intangible. Oh, yeah, they, for sure. They always call it in basketball the intangibles. This was an intangible, I think. Yeah. Mm. I think that they still 
For you, it's the Gold Cup. They ne- Well, yeah, I think winning the Gold Cup, if they win the Gold Cup mm. off the back of this, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good momentum going into the qualifiers when they resume as well after, and the Gold Cup. But I think that if they get to the World Cup, for example, yeah, I mean, obviously at 18 months, because the World Cup's going to be in at the end of 2022, I think 18 months is obviously a huge amount of time for those young players to continue their progress. As they are at this moment, I obviously still think this is a tournament too soon, the World Cup coming up. I think that's fair. And that's fair. And, you know, they've won Gold Cups before, like we've mentioned. You know, they won one f- a few years ago and then didn't get to the World Cup the following year. It's really important for the men's national team. Continue that momentum and make sure that this isn't just another moment like 2017. Do you know what I'm interested in? Last, and last thing I'll say on this, I'm fascinated by how this will be regarded three years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back and someone goes, oh yeah, at this point is when looking back, I really started to believe, or we started to believe as a unit. I want to see how this figures in the conversation for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, great game. Congratulations, US. Commiserations, Mexico, but they'll be back. This, this rivalry is going nowhere and these teams <laughs> do not, these teams do not like each other. Right then, after the break, what if time? This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, man. What if time? Do you want to go first? This one's from Oliver Kirby at Oliver G. Kirby on Twitter. What if Dortmund beat Bayern in the 2013 Champions League final? I'm thinking of career arcs for Lewandowski, Klopp, Gundogan, the fallout that affects them and other clubs. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So now there's a couple of things here. There's the fallout for Dortmund, obviously, and the fallout for Bayern. Now, I think just to start with the, very quick with Bayern, Bayern, I think this is a traumatic defeat because they would have lost two straight Champions Leagues, one at home to Chelsea in their own stadium, and they would not have got, and they would not got the redemptive 2013 victory. Mm. So that's two defeats back to back for that generation of players. And this would have been a heartbreaking defeat because they just destroyed Barca in the semi. So there was a real sense of destiny maybe behind this. There was a cathartic sense of this victory. It means that Robin doesn't get his cathartic final victory. Mm. And Iron Robin's been, you know, he's had the trauma of misses in big games before. So I think this has a destabilizing effect on Bayern. And then Gertz has just gone there as well. Gertz has just signed for Bayern. They return with a vengeance the next year, but by then Real Madrid have regrouped. So have Atleti. And those teams aren't clowns. So I wonder if this is as close as Bayern come again for a while, to be honest. And does this affect the destination of, well, because Pep's already decided to go there, hasn't he? Yeah, he joins after. Yeah, Pep has, I think, by this, by the time of the final, I don't know if Pep has yet, dis- has he decided to go already by the time the final's played? Yeah, I think it's announced he's, earlier. He's announced that, yeah. So Pep's decided to go there. For Pep, I think it's better if they don't win it that year. Of course, it gives him permission. Yeah. 
From yeah. a Dortmund point of view, I think it's really interesting because the, they lost the league by 25 points that year and they were only a point ahead, ahead of Bayer Leverkusen. So there's a big gap at domestic level. Obviously, Goethe, like you said, has agreed to go. He sat in the sands at Wembley already knowing that he's basically a Bayern player after the final. The thing that's interesting for me is the Lewandowski case because Lewandowski joins after the end of the following season. Dortmund do close the gap domestically, but they still come 19 points behind Bayern in the league. However, I don't think it changes the trajectory for Bayern a huge amount in terms of... For Dortmund, it does. I wonder whether it means that Dortmund can bring in more more players, maybe keep hold of Lewandowski. Uh, You hit Lewandowski with a contract extension there and then. With peak Lewandowski? Yeah. And Klopp, Klopp obviously has proven that he's done it. He can do it. You know, in four or five years there at Dortmund, they've won what? Like a double, like another league title and a Champions League. And does Klopp hang around? Does Klopp hang around? Well, it's tricky because actually, if you think about the trajectory of it, the downfall of Klopp at Dortmund, timeline wise, is extremely similar to what happened to Liverpool this season and the distance from their Champions League victory. Right. Obviously, there's different things at play here with the pandemic, but... And the personal stuff. And the personal stuff, yeah, for sure. I think the thing that makes it interesting is that obviously Dortmund haven't won the league since then. There was a couple of things that go into creating the envir- or the, uh, the, the conditions that we've got now, right, in, in Germany. And I think that that Champions League final was won because I think if Dortmund had won the game, right. it wouldn't have been a robbery. No, no, that's right. That's fair. It's the psychological impact of winning that final. The law for, to go and play for Pep is always going to be there for a number of players. But then you've also got Klopp has secured himself as an absolute elite manager in the eyes of the world, even though everyone knew he was anyway. Do you know what I mean? So people knew that. But still, you know what it's like when you get to finals, you have to win them. I wonder whether it shifts the psychology at Dortmund of being like a place that you develop and then move on because it's proved that you've won, you can win the very, very top title. And I think that happened when they last won it in, in the end, towards the end of the 90s. I don't know, man. I think, it makes, I think it makes Dortmund a really, really attractive destination. Well, don't forget in 98, how hard Real had to fight to beat Dortmund. I think they went to the semi, didn't they? And Redondo mm-hmm. basically put in a masterclass and that was the only reason they beat them. And like, you win a Champions League, it gives you this astonishing momentum and it creates unpredictable results, which is why we're doing a what if about it. But one of them is really... Dortmund win a Champions League, a different calibre of player answers the phone or agent answers the phone. And there is that two-year window where you pick up some players who wouldn't otherwise go there, Mm. which changes, I think, the entire arc. Also what it does for the German League. Mm. People don't just look at, oh, well, Bayern won and it was an all-German final. No, it's like it was an all-German final and the team we didn't expect to win won again. Mm. And we'd seen Dortmund take Bayern apart in the... um, the Pokal final, I think the 5-2. And this, to, to beat them in two cup finals, that, that puts them in a different category, Ryan, I think. And, and what, it, what that does in terms of, you know, sponsorship deals, or no, all, the other, all the other intangible stuff that comes with victories like that. The Lewandowski thing is the really interesting thing for me because I think that if Dortmund have won the Champions League and they hit him with a contract offer, right. I think he maybe stays. I don't know that for sure, but I think he maybe does. Because... If you take a contract offer to Robert Lewandowski, having won back-to-back league titles and then a Champions League the following year, one of those back-to-back titles come in as a League and Cup double. In three years, you've won four trophies right. at Dortmund. That's the first season that they, since Lewandowski went there, that they hadn't won the league. 2010-11, 2011-12, they won the league. So Lewandowski's first two seasons at Dortmund, they won the league. 
the third season they went to the Champions League final, if they win that Champions League final, in three years he's won four trophies at Dortmund. Why do you leave that? You don't. You don't. I don't think you do anyway. And he, and as Lewandowski went on to prove, and as Klopp would have known, if ever a player was decisive in the destination of a title, it's been Lewandowski. In Oliver's tweet, he says, thinking of the arcs of Lewandowski, Klopp, Gundogan, the fallout that affects them and other clubs. So obviously we've talked about Klopp. We've talked to, well, we haven't really talked about Klopp. I still think Klopp, I don't think Klopp does any longer than, than he does. He's smart enough to know his value, isn't he? He's yeah. smart enough to know when the tide is turning and when to freshen things up. Maybe he goes in 2013, as soon as he wins that Champions League. Possibly. Oh God, well, that, if that happens, that changes everything, doesn't it? This, yeah, I mean, that offers a completely different set of circumstances. Because he's... Clock on the market 2013, that's, that's then Manchester United throwing a bit as well. Well, if you think he would have been there, that would have been the end of his fifth season at Dortmund. And he's, right. you know, like I say, he's delivered the trophies that he had. Maybe he walks in 2013. I mean, that is a hell of a time to go out. So maybe if... I think the, the, the scenarios that we've explained already, I think happen if Klopp stays. If he doesn't stay and he decides to go, 2013, that's the Man United gig. It is because no one else is free at that. Well, that, that, that vacancy is there. Because I, if, there, if there was that thing about, you know, he got shown he around. He the Glazers, he yeah. saw the Glazers and wasn't impressed. He might not go, that's the thing. And if he doesn't go, then no, this is the thing. If Klopp is on the market, then nobody's safe. A Champions League winning manager gets an offer from Chelsea, gets an offer from anywhere, frankly. I mean, Chelsea will offer you the job, whoever's in, whoever's in charge. <laughs> I love you, Chelsea, but you're not afraid to pull the trigger. Um, but no. Chelsea could offer some, could offer um, Real, why not? Like, they'd offer. All right, I've got a potential, I've got a potential one. Okay. But let me find it. By the way, Gundogan stays, I think. I mean, when does Gundogan leave? 26? Exactly, 2016. And he leaves and he's had injuries and the rest of it, but he's stayed at Dortmund through the tough stuff, so he'll stay through the good stuff, I think. Here's, here's, here's an idea for you, right? Here he is. Okay. They win the Champions League. Right. Gertz is gone. Yep. Klopp leaves after the Champions League. Takes a year out. Neil Shannon says, what if Wenger stepped down after winning the, the FA Cup in 2014? There he is. There he is. Klopp takes his sabbatical. <laughs> Wenger steps down. Arsenal go after Klopp in 2014. I'm not saying that this is what I think would have happened. This is what should have happened. If that, it, it, if that it should have out. happened. It should have happened. Everyone was, everyone was saying the ownership structure would that have been okay for him? This was pre-full Cronky ownership, remember? And that, that might have been more, exactly. So that's attractive because I think Cronky, I think is a straight no, but pre-full Cronky ownership, I think is a possibility that he does it. Mm. I think it's a possibility. He's got decent pieces in that squad as well. And like, then you've if you got, consider what he turned around at I Liverpool. Know, I know. Yeah, but if you think that's an Arsenal squad that has, um, you know, they nearly won the league in what 2016. Exactly, they should have won the league in 2016. Should this have wasn't a it. Mickey Mouse squad. Should have won it. The dysfunction of English football clubs cannot be explained. The dysfunction better. of Arsenal football and, that, club. That, well, but no, but not not just Arsenal, but United as well. The failure, quite frankly, to recruit Klopp with the greatest possible enthusiasm and even aggression. Yeah, but maybe he didn't want to go. I mean, if you think about it, he stood down in 2015 and was kind of on his time off. And then Liverpool came in the, in the, in the autumn. I'll never be convinced. I think you wear your Sunday best to woo that man. I think you woo that man with everything possible. And no, respect Liverpool, they did a great job of it. But I will still never believe that he was recruited 
with sufficient enthusiasm by other people. Yeah, I mean, my, my, that was my ideal scenario, but I, I genuinely think that actually there's something about, I've said this before, Klopp and Liverpool make so much sense. The culture I don't think Klopp and Arsenal yeah. makes as much sense, but maybe that maybe it does back in 2014. Maybe he can mould Arsenal into more of what he's about. Back then, off the back of a trophy, Klopp coming in in 2014, I think that, that shapes a very different second half of the decade for Arsenal. Very it's different. Huge. It's huge, yeah. People want to play under Klopp at Arsenal in London with Mesut Ozil, peak Mesut Ozil, and the Germany team is on its way to win that World Cup. But then what happens to Liverpool in 2015? It doesn't happen for them because, and this is no disrespect to them, it's because the amount of work, and I want to I'm, I'm, I say this out of respect, the amount of rebuilding, obviously Rodgers did a great job, don't get me wrong, but Klopp did make some significant adjustments that took them on the final, I would say, 20% of the way. And those don't happen without him. They just don't because there's very few managers. We said this before. Liverpool end up getting, I think, one of the managers who isn't the sort of three best in the world. Do you think Liverpool make a move for Pep? I think it'd be really smart if they did. I think it'd be an amazing move for Pep. I think that'd be a brilliant move. I mean, post, post uh, Pep at Bayern, the competition could come in from those two. I think they have to start recruiting early though. I think Liverpool actually, funnily enough, they're the one club that have the vision. If there's a sense that Pep is on the market, Liverpool have the vision to compete. And also they've got the Spanish connection. They had Reina there as well. They've got like a really good Spanish heritage there as well, Liverpool. Pep at Liverpool, I think is an excellent fit, actually. I mean, if you think they, when did they fire Rodgers? It was in like or, uh, September, October time, right? Was that right? October, November? Yeah, October. October 8th of October, Klopp took over at Liverpool in 2015. So say for argument's sake, he's at Arsenal. Liverpool want to fire Rodgers then. I wonder if they may just get a caretaker until the end of the season and make a move for Pep then. The problem with the City thing is though, I kind of think it's inevitable. They've City, been recruiting City so early so as well. hard and they were essentially Three building years. the club to get him there. Yeah. So I'm not, I think it's a great idea or it's a great like hypothetical. Strong but hypothetical. I can't see it, yeah, yeah. But I'm not actually sure it does change that much. I think I've more, never seen a club build themselves to recruit someone that early out in no, terms no, of all no, the infrastructure. Their, yeah, that was yeah, their yeah, entire yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, too much, we haven't really got a definitive answer on that one. Should we? It's so good. Yeah. But, but sometimes a what if just remains a what if. It remains open-ended. Listen, some of the best stories have no direct conclusion. So let's yeah, just... It's like, the, uh, it's like the end of Inception. Exactly. We're still spinning on that. Uh, spinning still top. spinning. Uh, let's take a break and we'll do another one after this. Gavin Lippman says, what if Ramos missed that header and Atleti win the 2014 Champions League finals? Oh, two very similarly linked ones. I like these. Does the balance of power shift in Madrid slash La Liga? Does Simeone stay on ha- after having won La Liga, the La Liga Champions League double? What would have happened to that Madrid side? I think it's very, very similar to the Dortmund one we had before, actually. I've, yeah, exactly. In the sense that it doesn't change much for Madrid. No. Madrid will carry on. Madrid will find their way to win. Madrid, Madrid will carry on winning Champions Leagues because that's what Madrid do. But it changes things for Atleti, for sure. But though, they still haven't got the decima. Yeah, but I think in the long run, it's Madrid. That, thing, that, that base, that squad, that core keeps being competitive in knockouts and gets, it gets the Champions League. It gets the decima at some point. It gets it at some point. I just, I just think, I think their depth of talent, they end up winning a Champions League at some point in the next 10 years. They just don't get a dynasty 
Does Zidane still end up coaching them? I think he gets his go eventually because I think that's the way the power works on a cruise in Madrid. I think the bigger impact, as you say, is for Atleti. I go through where the question is, you know, Simeone wins a league title, obviously, for Atleti and comes back to restore glory and gets that glory European level he didn't get in 74. So in some sense, the end of it, it's the end of one chapter, but the start of a new one. But I think actually that might even deepen his fervor and his belonging, because once you've done that, what's actually tempted him away? Mm. The, the sense that he is stale, the sense that he hasn't got a way to take the club forward, that's what I think has pushed him towards the door, not a sense for a new challenge, because I think that Simeone is someone who can be satisfied by success at one club. I think he's almost, un- I think he's almost unique in that respect. He's kind of like an uber Pochettino in that sense. I think it's the quality of player that Simeone attracts now again. I think that it opens up a different level of attacking talent that come to the club and it allows him to make the, the evolution that he's making now with Joao Felix, I think comes slightly earlier. You think? Because, does that make sense? Because what happens is when you won a Champions League, everyone's coming for you. Everyone's sitting deep. You're not the underdog anymore. You've got a counterpunch. You've got to play on the front foot. So Simeone is thinking, we can't do the Atleti thing of counterattack now that we've won because the teams are just giving us the ball. Mm. So we have to find new tools. And I think that changes the conversation for them. I think it makes them thrilling. I think it makes them more exciting earlier, actually. Again, I, I wonder what this does for Ancelotti because he gets fired after that 2014 final, no doubt. No question. And then that's really interesting because he has a year out after the Real Madrid gig before going to Bayern. But I wonder what that does for his career. I don't think he ends up at Bayern at all. No, no, no. Mm. This is so interesting because this is also the summer that they go to the World Cup. Mm. Is this a pivotal year then? Because this is also, Barca are rebuilding. Neymar is coming to the end of his first season at Barca. He's been somewhat deferential to Messi, I think people have been saying, but he's still just getting used to European football. And then of course, Enrique, Luis Enrique comes in the next year and... I don't think it changes anything for Bayern. Uh, for sorry, for Barca. I don't either. I don't think either. I think that I think that Letty Barca becomes the kind of more of the head to head. I think it does have a shift. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because though, do you know what it is? The reason it's tough, Ryan, is because those teams are so sure of themselves in terms of their identity. I know that Real are kind of like build it as you go along and win however it looks. But those teams actually, if you look at Barca, Real, and Letty. They're really sure of themselves, aren't they? If you think about it, like the way that they're playing fundamentally doesn't change that much over the next two to three years. Mm. I'm rethinking this a little bit. I think this could have actually potentially really bad effects for Real. This is the first final they've been to since they won in 20, uh, 2002. 2002. Right, right. And they went to the semi the year before, got knocked out by Dortmund. Mm. This is their first trip back and the furthest they've been since they won it. And they want La Decima. This is the thing, yeah, the club has been obsessed, obsessed with Ledesma. If they lose it to Atleti in the final, winning Ledesma when they won it freed them up in order to go and win those three after. Right, cathartic, right. But I don't think the three in a row happens without Ledesma. I just don't, I don't think, think it, it does. does. I don't think it does either. And I think we've covered this on a past what if before. There's part of me, that's, and it sounds a little bit over the top, but there's part of me that wonders if they're still looking for Ledesma now. The fear's gone. But the thing about Atleti is that, remember, they get, they get done by Real in two or three finals. Yeah. Two finals Brutal. in three years. No, two Brutal. finals in... Yeah, 2016 yeah, it was as well. Yeah, it was two and three. Yeah. 
think that's I think that's big. If you think that you know, if Atleti deliver, they won the league, which stung everyone in Spain anyway, apart from Atleti fans, obviously, and they win the Champions League. That takes them internationally to another level. I well, think if they do let's that, let's say for argument's yeah. sake that like Atleti won that, and then Real Madrid go back to the final two years later with Atleti in twenty sixteen. They never looked on top. It's so strange, Atleti, in that game. It felt like the sort of Bayern-Valencia final where Valencia mm. were never never had the upper hand on Bayern. And they lost on penalties, but you felt they were always going to lose on penalties. 2016, I think, more swagger. Atleti aren't afraid. The hoodoo is broken. That historical thing is just broken. That feeling that Atleti always had, that Real always have an upper hand over them. Atleti, in two finals, were an injury time header from Sergio Ramos and a penalty shootout away from winning two Champions Leagues in three years. That's fucking mad. And a missed penalty as well in one of those and finals. A missed pen- yeah, in this 2016 final, Griezmann hit the bar. This is great as a question because what you said there, it speaks to the fine margins. Mm. Like I can say, I can sit here and go, I think they win one more Champions League over the next 10 years. But frankly, Ryan, I can't tell you which one of those they win. I mm-hmm. can't tell you which of the last few they win because the whole configuration changes. Mm. 2014, you're right, it settles the ship. It makes them play with confidence, with swagger. We're rail again. We're that team. And, you know, they were almost in danger of being a legacy team. Mm. When, 20, when 2002 happened, end of that glorious cycle, they'd won in three and five years. 2014 was almost like, it wasn't a Hail Mary, it wasn't. But it was, there was a moment. It was a moment that came along and they capitalised on it and obviously ran with it. Mm. No, great shout. Okay. Maybe it doesn't happen. I've got an okay, idea. So I've got an Real idea. Sorry, go on. That's the galaxy brain take. Real are still looking for La Decima. In a, in a very, very, very strange turn of events, we've actually got a what if that ends up in Real Madrid don't win three straight Champions Leagues. Still looking. <laughs> <laughs> Inverse Stadio. Inverse. Stadio. <laughs> oh. All right, let's do this one. And I think we'll keep it as this and keep it a Champions League special what if. Because why mm. not? Yeah, why not? Uh, 4-4 Haiku says, what if Bayern had gone for Arsene Wenger instead of Hansi Flick after Niko Kovac, as was rumoured? Does the great man finally get a Champions League medal? So remember, this is, what, November? No, October. Yeah. 2019. Niko Kovac gets fired by Bayern. Few rumours about Wenger going. Wenger's been out of the job for what, just over a year? Not had a job? I think in terms of energy, maybe not as ruthless as Hansi Flick, but very, very similar. Do you know what's funny though? I think he might get the Champions League, but not the Bundesliga. That's really intriguing. Do you see what I mean? Because the deep dive that Flick did, there's a level of knowledge that Flick had of the squad that he gets which I think gives me extra nod as their capabilities because you know, Flick basically had to adjust. What Flick did at Bayern, it was like jumping onto a raft in the middle of the rapids in terms of the way that season was going. And he intimately knew the river, right? In a way that Wenger wouldn't necessarily. And so I think Wenger makes them competitive again in the Bundesliga. But I think the other clubs have a slight march on him. But I think Wenger in cup tournaments. We saw it in the FA Cup. We saw the Champions League, the deep run. With the pieces he has and his gravitas, I think I think Wenger, Wenger to Bayern is a bit like Ancelotti to Real. 
they're quite mm. analogous in terms of squad command. See, this is really interesting because I think that, yeah, I think that one of the, the main things that happens in the Bundesliga turnaround, because bear in mind, Dortmund were nine points clear. Or right. what, they were at the exactly. break. Yeah, yeah, that, break yeah, yeah. In January. absolutely, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that Flick does very, very quickly at Bayern is putting things back in the right places. Yep, square pegs, square holes, you said it. Now, yep. I think that Wenger does this. I think that Wenger goes in with more of a... Hmm, I still think they play the high line. I think they're quite liberated under him. Yeah, no question. No question. So there's part of me that thinks that maybe they don't, maybe they still go on to win the Bundesliga. The thing that really helps Bayern in the Bundesliga is the Bayern-ness of Flick. Like you said, like they're having, that's, and we've mentioned this a number of times before about how like he's an ex-Bayern boy. That's, it's a, just that's like, a big thing. This is what we do at Bayern. This is how right. we win the league. You know, at that point, it would have been 13 years since Arsene Wenger won last the league title. Oh, no, it wouldn't have been, actually. No, it would have been, sorry, it would have been 15 years. 15 years since Arsene Wenger last won a, a league title. It was 2004, wasn't it, the last one? The unbeaten yes. season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would have been 15 years and what, 15 and a half years since Arsene Wenger last won a league title. Imagine if you told Wenger in 2004, at the end of that season, you won't win the league for 15 years. Ever again. Ever again. Can you imagine if you told him that, he'd have been like, what? Mm. I think the Bundesliga is out of reach because he can't pull Dortmund back. The higher a flick, it reset things. It went, you know, it did. It restored the Bundesliga's the factory settings, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Dortmund ended up with the Bundesliga and Bayern ended up with the Champions League. Obviously amazing for German football and actually quite a nice journey's end for both managers because both managers getting the title that people thought was beyond them, like Ranieri style. Mm -hmm. Oh, Favre can't take his team over the line. Actually, he's done it. Wenger can't do it in the Champions League. Well, yeah, Wenger knows his onions tactically. And maybe losing the Bundesliga, missing the Bundesliga, gives Wenger the final level of ruthlessness and is like, this is not going to happen to me. I'm getting this trophy. And he pulls out all the kind of spades and actually surprises people. Does a couple of things tactically quite interesting in the late stages that overcome teams. Because remember that this is the, there's a huge break and then they have the, they have the, the knockout tournament in Portugal, but it's single-legged. Yeah. Wenger, yeah. oh, Wenger's, head to head Wenger. Wenger's buying play Barcelona though. I don't think it's 8-2. No, it's not 8-2. Because the configuration of things, necessary. Wenger's not ruthless enough for it to be an 8-2. Flick turns on the afterburner. Like Flick, this is a man that gets angry when his team is like 5-6-0 up against, what was it, Schalke? Mm. It was 4-0 against Schalke and they missed a goal for the fifth in the, in the first half. Mm. And Flick just lost it. <laughs> Flick went nuclear. So I don't think it's that same. I don't think they pile on the scores. But I can see... Wenger beating Tuchel in the head-to-head -head in the final. I mm -hmm. can see that, actually. Ooh, I don't man. think, I don't think, I don't, because I don't think that, I don't think that Wenger caters to Tuchel. I think they just miss out on the Bundesliga, for example. Put it yeah, that way. I think they, they just yeah. miss out on the Bundesliga and he really, really motivates him. He does the whole, like, this is why we play. Like, right, he said, this is why we play. And imagine exactly. how liberating that would be after Kovac. Exactly. Right? This is why we play, guys. Look at you. You're Robert Lewandowski. You're Thomas Muller. He can speak fluent German to them anyway. He can speak French to the French boys. 
you know, he's... That's, oh, that's big as well. That's yeah. big as well. Like Coman, man of the match in the final, Toliso. You have the French guys in there. The, the interesting thing for me is Serge Gnabry. Serge Gnabry's there and Wenger's working with Serge again. Those two loved each other. And Wenger literally let him go, I think, because it was like, we need to let Serge go. Do you know what's amazing? Wenger comes in. I, it's all in the team talk that Wenger gives us, isn't it? Wenger's basically like, Champions League final, he's like, I never coached a national team. Maybe I never will. But now I've realised I've coached something bigger. And he's like, he gets into it all. And he, this is a man that could actually, you're right, he could switch languages like nothing else. He speaks like five languages. Wenger at Bayern is so perfect that I feel like it's already happened. I feel like, you know, I feel like this podcast is an alternate universe. And in the real universe, Wenger is the coach at Bayern. He's still there. Do you know what? I, I, I would have loved to have seen him there this season coming up instead of Nagelsmann in a heartbeat, actually. It would have been amazing. In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. It's just so right, isn't it? It's so mm. proper. The thing is now, I'm thinking, I'm imagining Wenger, final whistle. He's wearing his cardigan with his shirt and tie and his suit. And he just drops to his knees. You know, you remember and, when he won yeah, the yeah. FA Cup and he put his, like, there's that really famous picture of him looking in the air, like with his eyes closed, like, like kind of being like, yes, with his fists up. Yeah. Wenger winning the Champions League, finally, at Bayern, at the end of that season. Do you think he just bounces? Of course. Bounces to FIFA. He's, so are we saying, so Wenger comes in after Kovac, they just miss out on the league? Yes. yes. But they win they the Champions League yeah, and, and then, then he, bounces. he bounces. Yeah. But then who do Bayern get in 2020? Anyone they want. That's really interesting, man. But so we, we're deciding Wenger gets his Champions League. Yeah, he does. Okay. Wenger gets his. There yeah. you go. Those are not bad, actually. We've done pretty well, I think. I think we did so, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got some great questions. I'm sorry we haven't uh, yeah, sorry we gone didn't get deep through. on the others. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe save them and try and do another one. Soon. Yeah, let's save them. Do you know what it is? It's because these, these questions, we weren't expecting to start. Well, sorry. When we started out, we were expecting to do maybe a different format, but it just felt as the podcast went on that there's something about the Champions League and its destination mm. that changes, you know, the top-down effect of who wins affects so much within football, not mm. just at the club level, but the kind of like the local, the national. You know, you look at Barca winning in 2011 and how many teams came out going, you know, in the men's game and the women's game going, oh, we can actually play this style. We can play 4-3-3, possession football and pass teams out of existence. You know, that one victory changes everything. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I have, a, I have an endless fascination with the Champions League. Oh man, um, dude, I'm an Arsenal fan. If Arsenal win in 20, 2006, the whole club is completely different. Of course, it definitely different. is. Look at United in 99. Yeah, absolutely. The myth is back. The myth yeah. is back. The legend is back. And it Arsenal changes. Wenger gets his Champions League at a peak time, two years after the Invincible season. Omri, people like that all there. Vieira's, uh, Vieira, well, Vieira's gone by then, but still. That 06 final changes so much. Should we get out of here? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, we hope everyone's staying safe and well. Enjoy the Euros. We'll be back on Wrighty's house on Wednesday and we'll then see you, well, we'll see you throughout the Euros anyway on Wrighty's house. You, me and Wrighty. And then we'll be back for Stadio at the end of the group stages. Don't forget to check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. Check us on Twitter at Stadio, Stadio Football on Instagram. Stadio Outro's playlist on Spotify. Speaking of which, we're playing out on Dream. Indeed. Because, you know, we've been, been very dreamy through this episode by Jeff and Indeed. Jane Hudson. Anything you want to add, Musa? 
No, I'm all good. All present and correct. You're all good. Yes, this yes. This is great. Cool takes, calm takes, no hot takes today. <laughs> cold takes. The weather's too hot for hot takes, frankly. I know, it's too hot I know. Get myself to a lake. All right, everyone, much love. We'll see you on Ryder's house. Have a lovely week. See you there. Things are not always what they seem.